Hi, welcome to Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. This week we talk about perovskite and organic solar cells, the horrible health effects of backyard gold ore refining in Indonesia, and a new free open source metal 3D printer. Sorry about the late release this week, I've been working really hard to submit a paper, and I spent one night going to see the live show of the Welcome to Night Vale podcast, which was really great. You should look for them on iTunes. Anyway, here's the episode. Well, hi, and welcome to Laser, the Material Science Podcast. I'm Cameron Kopis. Uh, I'm a PhD student studying material science at Arizona State, and my research is in the quantum decoherence problem for quantum computing. Um, my co-hosts today are Chase. Hi, I'm Chase. That's it? Is this the, is this the part where I introduce myself? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, introduce yourself. Uh, okay, I am currently unemployed, but before I was an engineer at Orbital Sciences, and before that at Lockheed Martin. So when I worked primarily in aerospace, specifically in aerospace, specifically uh, working on uh, parts, materials, and process, and then also the failure analysis on um, semiconductor parts. Our other co-host today is uh, Chris. Hey, I'm Chris. Um, I went to Arizona State for my undergrad in material science. I'm at Michigan State now for a PhD, and I'm working with transparent organic photovoltaic devices, trying to make them more efficient and improve their lifetimes. All right. Sounds good. Uh, this is our first episode that we've recorded. We're recording entirely over the internet. So there, there are none of us are in the same room as each other. Usually we record with like all four people around one mic, but so what do we want to start with? Um, Up to you guys. I'm, I'm fine with what with the order that you emailed them to me in. I don't I don't really care. Okay. So the first paper we want to talk about today is something that was published in Nature Photonics uh, in late December of 2013. Title of the paper is Perovskite Solar Cells Employing Organic Charge Transport Layers, and it's sort of they do kind of a review of the past. Uh, history in photonic solar cells and then they talk about their advancements um wait do you have do you have the the full article oh yeah do you need it yeah i i it's behind the paywall Uh, i could only i could only read the uh the abstract of course i forgot about that based on the abstract i went and read a couple other um bits and pieces about solar cells because i didn't want to be the only guy who didn't know what we were talking about so yeah sorry uh, i I forgot. Oh no, no, it's no, it's okay. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying because I know you know quite a bit, and, and Chris obviously knows quite a lot. So, Chris, you want to take it away on this one? Uh, yeah, I guess I'll give a brief summary. So, um, in this particular paper, they're using a perovskite material. Uh, it's a metal halide using a lead iodide, and um, essentially what they're doing, which is, I ah, let's see. I guess I'll give a, a brief background on why perovskite solar cells are cool. Or so, first, what uh, a perovskite is. And maybe what a highlight is, for people who don't know. All right, well, um, so this this material is uh, it has a methyl group and an, ammoni- an ammonia group, so CH3, uh, NH3, and then lead iodide. Uh, so the perovskite, it's, uh, it's just a type of crystal structure. That's all it is. So... Um, why this is important in solar cells is um, crystalline materials, uh, apparently specifically perovskites, have extremely high uh, carrier mobilities. So this is important because 
mobility directly relates to resistivity, and resistivity directly relates to the efficiency of, of the device. So um, essentially by by uh, using this material as an... Uh, I don't know how to put this, man. <laughs> uh, That's the, the, the collector in the PN junction, or the where the holes and electrons are generated in the PN yeah, junction. Yeah, yeah. They okay, can travel so, further and be captured. Right, exactly. So that's that's what I was trying to say. So um, the reason why these these perovskite materials are uh, really useful is because you can make them extremely thick in terms of okay, extremely thick in terms in, in relation to other organic solar photovoltaic devices. Uh, so extremely thick would be hundreds of nanometers. Um, so this is a good thing because the thicker the thicker the material is, the more light you have a chance to absorb. So why don't we just make solar cells infinitely thick. The reason why we can't do that is because uh, electrons and holes can only travel so far in, the, in these materials. So this is where the mobility comes in. Well, the mobility is what allows electrons and holes to travel as far as they do. So um, yeah, that's why we can make that's why we can make these materials especially thick with respect to other photovoltaic materials. So that makes them easier to make and uh, not as sensitive to other effects that might break them, right? Well, so other effects that might break them. So you're, so you're, are you talking about lifetime now? Then, well, yeah, lifetime or uh, oxidation. Yeah, that's that's another aspect. So uh, one thing that specifically organic photovoltaics have a lot of issues with is lifetime because they're organic materials. They, uh, as you mentioned, uh, go under oxidation. Uh, moisture can ruin the materials. So um, Using an inorganic material is that is a really good way to improve the lifetime of these devices. So, ironically enough, as little organic material as possible is best. <laughs> so um, it is. Yeah. So uh, it. Conti- sorry, Cameron, but continuing in that vein of as little organic uh, material is is better. Can you explain to me personally, because I don't really know that much about solar cells? Can you explain to me why what advantage does an organic solar cell have over say a metallic one where they're or not metallic not metallic not semi is it cost it's it costs yeah, a sorry, huge semi-care. part of it uh, another huge part of it is that with organic materials uh, you can actually make tra- visibly transparent devices which you cannot do with metallic solar cells okay the, so is that just for aesthetics is that for aesthetic purposes or is that just just something neat does it actually um, like improve the function? It's, it's it's useful because with transparent solar cells, you can you can basically install windows that are that also act as solar cells, and you can put you can put these on skyscrapers. So you know, imagine downtown Phoenix; is, every building acts as a giant solar cell. So instead of reflecting all the light, or like when you put tint on it, the tint gets rid of some of the light. You just absorb some of it, so you let most of the light through, but only absorb ten percent of it, or whatever. Well, like you can with organics. Organics. Right, that's so, that's the idea for okay. a window. Right, so um, in transparent solar cells, you're still absorbing about the same percentage of light, just at different wavelengths. So for silicon, you absorb a lot of visible light, uh, and we, so what we want to do to make to make these visibly transparent. Note, note that I'm saying visibly because uh, they are not completely transparent at all wavelengths. We're still absorbing a lot of UV light, and we're still absorbing a lot of infrared light. Well, leaving the sense. visible region untouched. Okay, so those are things that you already wouldn't be seeing, so it doesn't matter if they're gone. Exactly. Ah, that's okay, so that, that's actually really cool. I did not. So that makes sense. That's a pretty big advantage of these organic uh, photovoltaic cells that you can target which uh, which spec which uh, part of the light spectrum you want to absorb. That's right. That's okay, as opposed to like a silicon cell where you pretty much are stuck on that one specific wavelength. Yep, which is mostly visible. Yeah, so yeah. you lose all that. Do you, now, I actually have a, I have another question. It's again, it's about sources. Have they tried? Have do they do uh, do they do this, or have they tried doing this where they where you stack a, a bunch of layers up of di- ones that of uh, so cells that absorb different wavelengths of light? Have yeah. they tried that? Yeah, it's called yeah? a voltage junction solar cell. Okay, so that's how. So, all right, there's there's a thing in in solar in photovoltaics called the Shockley Keeser limit. I don't know how to pronounce the second name. Do you, Chris? Uh, you're about as, you, you do okay. as well as I do. All right, the Shockley Keeser limit. 
Uh, that's Q U E I S S E R. Sure. And uh, what that is is it shows the theoretical maximum efficiency for a solar material or for a photovoltaic cell. Um, there's a okay. few a few rules with it that like all of the light that is absorbed is converted directly into the electrons and holes. Everything else is converted into either trans goes transparently through the cell, is converted into heat and phonons, or uh, is reflected back. Is that right? I can't remember the third criteria. Um, something like that. But this this limit says that uh, solar materials can't have an efficiency above 33%. And I don't. That's that's for silicon. Um, that's just because there's there's always going to be some component of the energy lost to other things like phonons and heat. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm sorry, I'm just reading the Wikipedia article for it. Yeah, that's that's fine. Um, with with things like silicon solar cells, the maximum efficiency we've ever achieved commercially is about twenty percent, and then in a lab we've gotten twenty five percent. So you hear things sometimes about solar cells that have an efficiency of 40% or more, and these are those multi-junction solar cells where gotcha. they have uh, a what's called a quantum efficiency greater than one sometimes, or where there's different layers that absorb different wavelengths of light. So they're super, super expensive to make, uh, but they are more efficient. But it, it's only, it's kind of cheating because really you're, you have two solar cells instead of one. It's just stacked okay. on top of each other. Okay, and that really... And you have to consider the the benefits of just maybe making a lot of these cheaper, cheaper, easier to manufacture ones, and just spreading them out over a wider area versus condensing into a smaller area. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So basically, what you're saying is that they, if they really need to get like a high amount of power in a small area, like say on a spacecraft, they would want to use those multi, yeah, multi cell junctions. And they do. They do. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, I learned something today. So these these perovskite solar cells uh, says that they the highest efficiency re- achieved with these is fifteen point four percent, which is really high for like a, a alternative uh, a non silicon non gallium arsenide solar cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, most organic so, solar cells are like eight percent, and other stuff is even lower. Is okay. that right? Is so, that right, Chris? It says twelve percent. Um, yeah, well, this paper specifically is 12%. Yeah, but the um, highest that's ever been achieved with this... Yeah, it's 15.4, I think. Yeah. Um, so it, it all depends on what materials you use. Um, so, yeah, a, a lot of organic solar cell papers you'll see around maybe 8%. Um, our lab is... Our, our lab, I think we're around like 2% right now, but that's just because <laughs> we're not really... We're not focusing on increasing the the, the highest possible recorder limit. We're, look, we're just looking to, in our lab improve uh, certain components to those so i'm i'm working on uh, what's called the buffer layer um which i'm not going to go into because i don't want to get too far away from this paper but just you know as an example so they talk in the paper the paper is about using perovskite solar cells and then organic charge transport layers what does that mean or what's the advantage of an organic charge transport layer so let's see so Basically, the, why you want to have a charge transport layer? Um, another word for it, I guess I am going to go into go, going to go into the buffer layers because that's uh, that's kind of what that is. So the reason why we have, if you look at uh, the figure two in this paper, uh, they have a little schematic showing a, a, an energy diagram of all their materials. So you see that big block of the perovskite in the middle there, and you see uh, poly TPD on one side and PCBM on the other. So what? So if you look at these band gaps, poly TPDs. Um, PolyTV's conduction band is a lot higher than that of the of the lead iodide layer. So the reason why that is is because we want to block electrons from going that way. And you know this PCB PCBM uh, the valence band is a lot lower, and you so that's because you want to block holes. So that's essentially what you what we're doing there. We want to we want to block the wrong carrier from going to the wrong contact. That's what those are there for. Okay. All right. So I guess we kind of have to explain a little bit about how a solar cell works. Um, We've talked about doing a cell, a, an entire show just about solar cells, but maybe we should actually do this soon. Uh, <laughs> so when a sol- when a photovoltaic cell 
generates electricity from a, a photon or a, some light. The photon comes in and it basically in the material creates one hole and one electron. And you have to make sure that you separate those to do opposite sides of the material and capture them. So these layers are just there to block it to make sure that they go the right direction, right? That's basically what it is. Cool. All right. And is that sort of what you're working on? Because you said you're working on organic buffer layers? Yeah, so um, what I've been working with is, uh, I don't know if I should give the exact materials. The paper's in review, so... That's um, fine. You can wait. Just... Yeah, okay. So in, in organic solar cells, I'll give you a little bit of background on my work. Um, our buffer layers, we use the organic material bathocuprine, or BCP for short, and so in our devices, uh, this, this, is a, this is just a really wide band gap N-type semiconductor. So uh, our solar cells are pretty different from these just because um, we have two, two separate materials where, uh, that act as the absorbers for photons. So the, most of the photons get absorbed in the electron donor layer. They form an exciton. The exciton hops around, diffuses to the interface between the donor layer and what's called the acceptor layer, where it dissociates. That's where the electron separates from the hole. And if we follow the electron over to the cathode through that acceptor layer, that electron is going to hit the buffer layer. That's what I'm working. That's what I'm working on. So uh, this is important because uh, the buffer layer needs to be n-type so that the electron can get through it, but it needs to be a very wide band gap in case any excitons happen to make it to that uh, toward that cathode. We want to block those excitons. Uh, so the reason why that is is because if an exciton makes it to the cathode, it recombines and the energy there is just loss as heat, and that will help affect your efficiency. So um, one, th so my project on this has been to find a new material to replace BCP because it's organic, and it, as I mentioned before, undergoes uh, problems with oxidation and moisture. So uh, we found an inorganic material that is actually able to uh, replicate the efficiency that we were getting before with BCP. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> makes just, sense yeah yeah I think it does make sense Chase do you get it yep I get it alright um, do either of you have a timer because I have no idea how long we've been talking uh, my timer says 25.10 right now I don't know why mine doesn't have anything on here it's because you're running it in Linux yeah it might be Skype hates Linux Wait, uh, that's too bad oh well um, alright um, Actually, one issue that I did want to raise with this uh, with this paper that I read in there is what they they were talking again. All I read about in all I read extensively of the paper was the abstract, and it seemed like one of the things that they were um they were like trying to sell on this is that it's a lot that that you can get, avoid the heavy sintering that you have to do with a, with like a semiconductor solar cell. But it also said that to achieve high purity, they had to put it under vacuum. So I'm saying, so but so if they're trying to sell this as ease of like a ease of manufacture, doesn't that like doesn't like a high vacuum sort of like limit its like the scalability of this? I don't I don't think so. Because look at right, look at transistors. Intel is probably makes more semiconductor devices than anybody in the world and everything they grow is extremely high well it's not it's a ultra high vacuum okay so they grow a lot of stuff in mbe or sputter uh types okay. of configurations okay yeah that's true but i'm saying you know the size of a computer chip compared to the size of a solar panel there's still there's there's a lot of if you look at it they they grow these the computer chips on these giant wafers, and then they just cut it down to size afterwards. Okay. Every, everything is grown on larger scales. That's how they uh, they keep the price down. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. that was the last question I had about that. So, all right. Um, I'm feel comfortable with this. All right. Well, moving from space to extreme poverty, or not space. Moving from <laughs> what? It's like I really just want it to be about space because. <laughs> How will I get a chance to explain Lagrange points for the fifteenth time? Why should you just do it right now? Yeah, I don't a, want to. I don't right. want to do it apropos of nothing. Fair enough. Well, okay. So moving it, from super sweet solar cells to the world of extreme poverty. Well, we could say uh, solar cells are pretty cool, but they're still kind of expensive. Even you know what though else is expensive, gold. 
Gold, yeah. Gold's expensive. So, okay. If you were to mine an asteroid, you'd probably want to tow it to a Lagrange point. What, what kind of metals would you get out of an asteroid? You, I Probably not gold. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, cheap. You can get that right here on Earth in Indonesia, in fact. Oh, wow. In- really? I had no idea. I Let's... thought all that you could get in Indonesia was extreme overcrowding. Well, I guess we should talk about that in the next segment. One hell of a transition right there. This, there's this article in the New York Times that I read. It was published on January 2nd, 2014 on their website. Um, so it's a little bit old, but not too bad. And this is an ongoing issue. It's not like a event. Uh, the title of the article is that small-scale gold mining pollutes Indonesian lands. So what the, the big problem that they're talking about is that a lot of people are very poor there and so the way that they make their money is they do this like home gold mining and the the small scale gold mining uh technique is extremely dangerous yeah don't they just heat up don't, don't they just throw a bunch of uh stuff that they think has gold in it and then heat it up with some mercury or is that just for the process or is that just for like the refining that's that's the refining. So the the mining isn't isn't so dangerous. I mean, it yeah. is. It's bad for the environment on its own because there's mining. But what ends up happening in Indonesia is that um, these people will sell gold ore very cheaply, and then anybody can buy it to refine it. So the te- the this is the they're, what they're, these people are using is they're using the old technique for refining gold ore that. Most countries have banned as as for any commercial mining or anything because it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, so it's it's almost exactly what you just said, Chase. Uh, you take the gold ore, you crush it up in a ball mill, and a ball mill is just like a it's like a tube with a bunch of gold. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> it's like a, a tube with a bunch of ceramic pellets in it that just rolls around constantly, and it crushes whatever you put in there really small. Just you can crush things really, really small, just depending on how long you leave them in the ball mill. And uh, once you get it really small, you put in a bunch of mercury that they can also buy pretty cheaply um, illegally in Indonesia because they've already tried to stop this uh, small-scale illegal gold mining. But people still smuggle in mercury. And what happens when you add mercury to gold ore is that the mercury and the gold form a compound that you can easily separate out. Um, so that's, it's going to be. So basically that's how you, that's how you sift out. That's how you sift out the, 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 the dirt and minerals from the, uh, from the ore. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and then you, and then you heat it up to get the, mer- and then you heat it up to get the mercury to like drain to drain off the mercury. Yep. So yeah, the, the gold basically just dissolves in the mercury. So you have this liquid that's all gold mercury compound. You and the mercury has a much out. lower and it has a much lower boiling point than gold. So you basically just boil off the mercury. Yep. Yeah, is you heat what, it up. Okay. You heat it up and boil off the mercury. So what ends up happening you, is is you inhale a bunch of mercury fumes. This is why this is the origin of the phrase "mad as a hatter" came from because they used to pure they used to uh, use mercury when they treated. Um, animal pelts yeah when they were making hats and the fume and inhaling mercury fumes over a long time is like really really terrible for you and it causes like all these debilitating mental illness like mental like not really mental illnesses but all these debilitating uh diseases that take the form of like mental instability and just insanity Uh and you just that's just if you inhale trace amounts right like if you well if you get like, if like you, any uh, non-trivial amount into your body, you'll you're done. Oh, I mean, if you 
if you get yeah, but this is like that. I mean, like you'd have to like be breathing nothing but mercury to get that for, and it takes a while for that to take effect. But if you just like if you just ate like a hundred grams of mercury, like they like the article says they use, yeah, you'd be dead. You're dead. Well, if you get it on you know? your, yeah, uh, if you get it on your skin, it can have effects after a while. It absorbs into your skin, and there are a lot of people. There mm-hmm. are uh, researchers who have died of uh, inhaling mercury fumes. Like in a lab, yeah. Just if you inhale too much, you're you're gone because uh, it, it well, affects yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's true of pretty much. You can that's true of a lot of things though in a lab. If you just if you do stuff with poor ventilation, which I imagine if you're in a third world in like a is Indonesia a third world country? I guess mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't want to classify it as that if like because I know they've got quite a bit of high tech stuff going on. I'm not sure, but. I the feel like the article looks pretty third world. I'm just going to put okay, that out there. Okay, so let's say let's say let's say it's a very like and if you're well, if you're in a very poor area, a very very impoverished area, you probably don't have a decent ventilation system, and because this is illegal, you're probably doing it in the dead of night in your in like you know a very in a windowless room somewhere. So yeah, it's going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since like there's absolutely no there doesn't seem there's any like sa- barely any safety precautions taken, and this is. Because these are so people. I mean, like, yeah. The whole well, thing is people. people doing it in their backyard at home. So you also have the other effects of it's going. To, if you're pregnant and you're breathing in these mercury fumes, it's going to mess up your your baby. Well, that's why pregnant women aren't supposed to eat fish. Yeah, so pregnant women aren't aren't supposed to eat fish, and yet here they are. Some of them are breathing mercury all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like it's one of those things where. Yeah, we, we go, how could you be so dumb? But, you know, like the the conditions in these countries are – in this part of this country is just so terrible that it's like, well, I could starve to death or I could make gold. Yeah. You know? And that's that's a real bummer, especially since I don't I don't really know – what island do they say this is on? Java? Uh, West Java? Sitisu. Well, that's – I'm pretty sure that's a, that's a that's a city, not an island. Okay, yeah, Sitisu is a says, city. I don't know what yeah, where what the it says. Is. I can't remember. The first one says West Java. Okay, first sense. So, I don't think Java's is bad. I think wait, is Java the one that is that Java the island with Jakarta on it? I don't know enough about Indonesian ge- geography. I'm googling it. I'm googling it. I don't want to come across like an ignorant. Yeah, it is the one with Jakarta. I believe this is actually the most populated island in the world. Really. Uh, the Jakarta, the city of Jakarta. I was actually reading about this, completely unrelated. I was reading about the Indonesian punk scene in, in uh in an issue of Razor Cake that was in a bathroom of a warehouse that I was in. Uh, <laughs> my life is extremely glamorous. Um, but no, they were talking about the Indonesian punk scene, and they say that the uh the the area around Jakarta is so it exists in a permanent state of gridlock because there are 135 million people on this island and it's just insane wow how about yeah it's it's a i'm reading i'm just reading the wikipedia article it's 60 percent of the indonesian population what they're saying is because it's perpetual gridlock even though it's only like 20 miles from one end of the city to the other there is no unity between the different districts in the city in, in the area because it's like it takes six hours to get from one side of the city to the other in traffic. You could probably walk faster, you know. Huh? Is this the place where it has like it, I read something about like the longest traffic jam in the world? Yeah, I believe so. Probably, this- that would it, that would see yeah Jakarta. Yeah, that would not surprise me. Okay, but but they're saying Western Java also has. Uh, Western Java, but that remote mountains of West Java. I guess that, yeah, there are some mountains just north of, just south of Jakarta. You wouldn't be gold mining gold near a city anyway, that close to a city at least, right? Well, that could be part of the reason that it's an absolute environmental disaster. That's true, but I think most of the environmental disaster is just because of this illegal gold mining they're not using the the legal process they're just, these aren't commercial gold ore refiners yeah these are just people doing it in their backyards um the we can talk a little bit about the the legitimate technique 
Oh, first, there's a statistic that was in the paper, or in the article. It said mm-hmm. that uh, various parts of the city showed mercury readings of between 5 and 50,000 nanograms per cubic meter. And uh, the WHO guidelines say that you should evacuate an area if there are between 1 and 10,000 nanograms of mercury per cubic meter. These are air samples. Um, so they're at least five times as high as the uh, the WHO guidelines for evacuation, not just like, oh, this is dangerous, don't drink the water. And uh, these people are living there constantly and just continuously adding to it. Yeah. Um, they said the same thing for the rivers in the area, have mercury levels between 15 and 140 times higher than the EPA safety standard for for a, a mercury content in a river. That's probably the United States EPA, since this is the New York Times. But <laughs> Well, this is... Um, so it's, wow. it's pretty pretty serious. Um, you, have, you have convinced me to not eat any food in Jakarta. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take note of that next time I'm there. Yeah, all right. Well, we can talk a little bit about the, the actual gold mining process. Do you guys understand it? Well, let's see. Apparently, I will. I'll do this because I value my reputation as a metals dude. I don't know. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Okay, so the gold cyanidation process is the accepted process in the industry for refining gold. Uh, so basically, what you do is you send the gold through a series of rollers and crushers and all that stuff to get the try to get out some of the coarse mineral stuff. And then you send that through the ball mill, and then you add a sodium cyanide solution with that finely ground ore, and that you uh, and then you add let that leach for a while, and then you add zinc to precipitate out the gold, and so then you remove the zinc with sulfuric acid, and the then you smelt cyanide, that. The sodium cyanide stays a liquid, right? Yes, it stays a liquid. Well, it it you that that stays as a I don't know if it stays as a liquid. I'm pretty sure what happens is you just kind of get like a sort of semi-liquid. Yeah, I guess you'd have to add enough yeah. if you're going to precipitate out. Yeah. And then you're left with that leftover liquid. Then you can filter you, out the extra rock at that point. And then you just, and then you basically, and then you separate out the, the poison and you put that in a separate tank for, and then you dispose. I think you have to de, I, I looked at a process, in that process diagram I looked at, there was a, uh, there was a, you have to go through a desyanidation process for the the non gold waste, okay. so you can safe so you can safely throw that out. I don't know what that uh, what that entails. I will have to look that up. Okay, so basically, if you go if another part of that process is apparently you at a high pH you aerate the wa- you you aerate the ore in water, and that renders elements like iron and sulfur less reactive to cyanide, so you don't have to. Uh, worry about them precipitating out along with, you know, your... So they won't dissolve with the sodium cyanide? Yeah. Okay. Sodium cyanide apparently dissolves a lot of metals. Yeah. I don't know much about how it works, but... Yeah, there's a chemical reaction apparently is... Yeah, has a high affinity for metals, so it's a... Yeah. Not sure what part of that caused that. Probably metal salts? I don't know. But, yeah, so anyway, so... And you recover the gold, and then you, hmm. Okay, before you throw everything out, they have to do a detoxification process. You use oxidants to oxidize cyanide to cyanate, and that is not is still toxic, but not as bad. Okay, so that's how you you clean it out afterwards. Yep. Obviously, this is still. Not nearly as bad as, you know, mer- people just dumping, mer- you know, like b- burning off mercury and dumping it in rivers and stuff. Uh-huh. But this is still a con- – but apparently there's still a lot of pollution that's caused by this because cyanide itself degenerates – degrades to, you know, like cyanates okay. in sunlight very quickly. But those secondary products, which while it's not as bad as cyanide but are still toxic, linger for for years. Hmm. And like 
a few years. And then uh, if you have a spill that's of that dispo that stuff you're disposing, you can't just huck it in like the in you just can't just huck it out. You have to actually dispose of it in like I'm not sure how they completely dispose of it, but it can if it leaks out from the processing plant, it can contaminate water to the point that it kills everything along in a river for miles. Okay. So it's still not very good. But it's and a little bit better than the mercury process. It's it doesn't have long term effects like the mercury process. It apparently um so apparently there was an incident in Romania um with where uh, there was a cyanide spill from a gold processing plant and it killed things for a mile, you know, it killed everything for miles downriver, but the plankton that was in the river apparently returned to 60% of normal within 16 days of the spill. Whereas mercury, that's in the system forever. Since it's such a heavy metal, it lasts around for a really long time. And, and it's an el- and it's an, it's it's an element. It's not That's a com- it's not a compound, so it can't degrade. So you can't degrade. It can't degrade into something less toxic. Yeah. So sodium cyanide is just a sodium atom, ionically bonded to a carbon atom, which is triple bonded to a nitrogen atom. Yeah. And so cyanide you, is just CN. It's not its own element. And exactly. That, that can that, that can, can degrade. Apart. That can. And that can be degraded, especially, yeah. you know, especially, you know, over time. So, I mean, that's going to be, so yes, it's not, obviously this is better than mercury, but it's still not great. And I think quite frankly, the whole, and I think the whole gold rush thing is just asinine when you consider that the only people who have legitimate need for gold our sci- our scientific researchers because we we love that we love that stuff for sputter coating and you know all <laughs> and like making screens and stuff it's 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 the bee's knees it's important in technology though like you need gold that's true and you and you, and you need go- yeah that's right you need gold in the semiconductor industry too but you know like that the vast majority of gold being purchased is not going to those industries it's going to like you know you know jewelry and you know mostly just jewelry yeah jewelry, jewelry and, and uh, people having neck. And knickknacks and putting grills in their teeth or whatever. Yeah, do people still do that? I don't know. <laughs> probably, probably. I mean, so it's a very important in electronic components, but like the scale that we mine for gold and the prices that we put on gold are really a very artificial thing. That are I'd consider gold to be as bad uh, the the love our love of gold and silver to be as bad as like you know people are always talking about like De Beers and the conflict diamonds and stuff I'd say our love of gold is probably even worse for the environment you know so maybe worse for the environment but maybe not as bad for uh for the people unless everybody's doing this this process in their backyard and breathing in mercury and they're doing and they're mercury and they're doing mercury when they got mercury and you know yeah I don't know I mean people still kill each other over gold that's true I just don't know how many like camps of slaves there are just mining gold Although I think that also happens in the same area with the conflict diamonds, so yeah, I'm sure. And this, and quite frankly, you know, if you know, if you don't have to, these people, like nobody's forcing these people to do this with a gun to their head, but you know, if because of all the extreme poverty in this area, in their extreme poverty, they're not really left with you know another option. It's either well, I can mine gold and die of mercury poisoning, or I can die of starvation. Yeah, because I don't so. And get mercury poisoning anyway, because apparently it's everywhere. <laughs> All right. Might as well be making some green, right? May as well. Oh, God, I'm depressed now. Chris, you didn't have very much to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> partially because partially I know nothing about gold mining. and or Yeah, Chase, Chase you're the metallurgist. And also, I was trying to distract my cat from attacking my headphones. Oh, all right, yeah, that's. <laughs> that, okay, we're gonna add, we're gonna add that to say Chris didn't say much because he was so overcome with emotion over the plight of his fellow human beings trapped in this horrible hellstorm of mercury poisoning and extreme poverty. All right, Chris was crying. Chris was crying a lot. There were some um, tears. Yeah, just bitter, bitter, manly tears. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, well, there is a bit of good news for people living in extreme poverty. They actually have found our next story is about a technique that's being developed that will actually lower the cost of manufactured goods. Nice. Yeah. 
There you go. Yeah. That's pretty good. All Bam. right. Nailed it. Silver and gold, silver and gold. Everyone wishes for silver and gold. How do you measure its worth? Just by the pleasure it gives here on earth. So here we are talking about a... 3D metal printer. Yeah, so this is uh, 3D printing has has been kind of uh, cool lately. Your your clicking is really loud. Sorry, I, I had to sw- I had to switch over to the, uh, the article. <laughs> okay, so uh, 3D printing has been uh, really cool lately. There's been a lot of a lot of good advancements, and mostly it's still been people in labs or just people at home or in uh, hacker spaces building these. 3D printers polymer. on their own. Yeah. And doing polymer stuff, you know. So uh, up to now, they've all been uh, polymer-based because they're, they're, there are a few commercial 3D printers for metal, but they're always uh, like $50,000. thousands of dollars. Yeah, because most of them work off of uh, something like a laser sintering process, which is patented, uh, which hopefully is ending soon. But there, there are a few metal... 3D printers. They're all. None of them are very good, and none of them are, use the uh, additive manufacturing process, which is the way that a normal plastic 3D printer works. Where what that one does is it it squirts out the plastic in layers and just constantly adds on top every layer that needs to go on top. So it allows you to build like hollow structures, but not super complicated things. So the whole point is this group at uh, Michigan Tech. Research group at Michigan Tech built a low-cost, open-source 3D metal printer using this additive manufacturing technique. Uh, it's based on the uh, RepRap design. So a RepRap is a series of 3D printers, or really it's a community of people building 3D printers, and their idea is that these RepRap printers can print most of the parts that they need to build another 3D printer. Uh, so it's to make it really affordable so anybody can get one. You can buy a regular plastic wrap wrap for about $500, uh, maybe a little bit less even, if you have somebody print the parts for you. So we actually have a friend, a couple of friends building rep wraps, uh, and there's a, a hackerspace in the Tempe area that has a few of them. People seem to really like them. They're actually really good 3D printers. They're almost as good as some of the commercial ones, and some people will say that they prefer them. So they built this metal 3D printer off of it. Um, the way they built it is they they designed most of it off of this RepRap structure, and there are different models of RepRap. This one they used was uh, called the Rostock, which is a DeltaBot RepRap. And uh, instead of extruding out a plastic material, this one has a commercial gas metal arc welder. So that's just something that you'd normally use to do metal arc welding to, to weld stainless steel parts together, uh, or to weld steel parts. I'm not sure if it's stainless. I know that that has a different temperature and different set of problems with, with welding. Um, they tried a couple different options, and they were able to build a rudimentary sprocket using this, this uh, 3D printer that they built. And their whole thing was all of these metal printers are super expensive, so they wanted to make it as cheaply as possible. Their final cost was $1,192 for the whole 3D printer and uh, the computer software and everything. And that's compared to a commercial one, which, like we said, is uh, $50,000 or $100,000. The article says half a million. Half a million. Jeez. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that they were that expensive. They published the paper in IEEE Access, and so the, all of their plans are open access. They're free to download, so anybody can build it. And they even said that this is just like a prototype. It's not a final version. It's not super great, but it's uh, it's a really awesome first step. So they're hoping that once they release it out to the public, other people will see it, get excited, build the same thing, and be able to improve on it. All my questions about the metal printing were like basically, how are you going to be able to control 
like one, I didn't really understand that they're just feeding a wire in. Apparently, it is just a wire that they feed through. Yeah. And the one thing is that I think is probably the main concern, and I think this is going to be fine for most, you know, consumer stuff that you just need to use to make at home. But you can't. It won't be good for high perform. You won't be able to use it for high performance stuff because I don't think that they can control the uh, the microstructure, like the microstructure they're going to get. Okay, yeah, they they actually talk a little bit about the microstructure in the paper. I, I I do see that. So, but what their problem is is that because they're doing this additive manufacturing process, anything that is like in the middle of a structure. So if you build, just say you're building a cube, um, yeah. the stuff on the edge will cool very quickly, which is good for hardness in uh, in metals. Yes, you want it but to it cool will, quickly so it doesn't grow large grains. It's, uh, you it's want not a lot going, of small grains. It's not going to it's not going to cool evenly, and that's the pro, and that's going to be the part of the big problem because you're not going to get the same kind of strength in the interior of the part. Yeah, that's part of it. They have they show a hardness test for the middle of their part, and it's 159, mm-hmm. and the stuff Wait, on the outside is, is 187. I think it's Vickers. Okay, HV. Yeah, it, that yeah. is HV. Is the Vickers hardness test scale? Yeah. So it's not Rockwell or anything, but that's no. normal for metal. You want to use Vickers, right? Yeah, you'd, yeah, you use Vickers. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean that's it's I mean, that's like you know, but again, for most commercial product, like you know, most stuff that you're just going to use around your house, you don't really, it's not going to be a huge issue. But for a car part or something, it's not going to hold you, up to high stress uh, or repeated strain at the, at least not at this point. No, with this technique, no, it's not. I don't, I, I don't, I mean, I wonder how they would, I'm actually curious to see, you know, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but there's, there probably is a way to control how you cool it. I think, I think the best way to do it would be to do the deposition in an oven, so have like a heated stage, and then to have a quenching step after, uh, or to quench it sequentially as you grow a layer then you quench it then you grow the next yes, layer that on was, top that was, that was the first thing i thought of yeah. was that you basically you, you allow you allow for it would it would definitely lengthen the process but you would end up with something a lot stronger and higher quality at the end of it you have to worry about uh the interfaces between the layers delaminating or separating that, that that's oh that's true oh so it's it's a hard problem but somebody will be able somebody to improve on it at least if not figure it out completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the the problem with like doing the whole thing in the oven is that you have to do the whole thing in an oven, which is going to pop the cost up quite a bit. Pop the cost up quite a bit, and also it's going to it's definitely going to decrease decrease the lifetime of your parts that you use to actually make the material. Yeah. You know your arc welder and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not, and then I mean, it's also going to li- and then also it'll limit the size of parts you can make. And complicate thing, and it'll definitely complicate operation because you're gonna have to put everything in the oven. That's true. So I mean, there's a lot of so I mean, it's like yeah, both techniques have their drawbacks. So I guess like I guess my way of saying that is that we're um, traditional manufacturing for like parts isn't gonna go away anytime soon. No, but this is a it's a good thing to be no able this to is build this this up. is um, this is amazing. This is like. This is great. This is like they said in the article. This is like first step to Star Trek. I, I can't wait till I get this powered by dilithium crystals, bro. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fantastic proof of concept, is what it is. Yeah, it's really great. This is very cool. I think it's and, even a, it's a little bit more than a proof of concept because if you look at what plas- what uh, polymer three D printing is used for, it's usually for prototyping something. Like you want to see, oh, I want to know what this would look like. Uh, you don't really want it, yeah. want to use something that you've just 3D printed in a complicated device or something. No, and, you know, but for commercial goods, like, you know, if you wanted a 3D print, it's like, well, I could go and buy a Tupperware container for, like, twenty, like you know, like a nice Tupperware ter- container for, like, five bucks, or I could just, you know, buy a, a bucket worth of plastic and make it out myself. Yeah, you know? and that, that's perfect. That's, and then you get that's to fine. customize it. It'll be exactly the shape and size you want. Exactly, and that's like very cool. But I think that's all this stuff is very, very cool. I, I think 3D printing is amazing. I'm really yeah. stoked. And actually, I want to point out that we we talked about one of the art, one of the issues that the dude touched on in the article. Uh-huh. Uh Was he was worried that this is going to lead to the proliferation of like homemade guns? Yeah, that is part a little bit of a problem since there was the big I, thing with the 3D printed gun. Yeah, but 3D also. 
Yeah, but they also said that that didn't hold up that well when they uh when they went under fire because you know nobody makes guns out of like entirely out of polymers for a reason. Well, they do. Well, I believe. I believe there are some, there are some commercial guns that are entirely polymer except for the firing pin. Hmm, I did not know that. Yeah. Well, on the but on the other hand, like this metal, like a gun that you make with using this process is not going to hold up the repeated strain very well. No, because of the additive manufacturing process, uh, it's yep. just something that doesn't hold up to a lot of pressure in between the layers. Because when you're printing something like you do in a 3D printer, the, all the layers have a tendency to like you can see the layers, the difference in the layers at first. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can see them under a microscope. You can definitely see them with your eyes before you polish it off. Yeah. Um, the other thing they talk about is that they use kind of a, a large wire for this picture or for the for mm-hmm. their uh, test. And so you look at it and you th- you look at the part that they printed and it looks kind of goopy. I don't know. It almost looks like yeah. you've melted apart. But that's because yeah. they were using a, a wire that was 2.75 millimeters in diameter. Wow. Um, and so that is 0.1 inches, so one-tenth of an inch, which mm-hmm. is really thick for something like a feedstock. Um, they talk about you could get this, use the same 3D printer to reduce the size down to a diameter lower than 0.024. So that's five times smaller resolution than, than what they printed with. Um, mm-hmm. And that would be pretty good. And that's just commercially available uh, wire for welding. Like, it would be the feedstock, basically. Have they actually have they actually uh, tried reducing the diameter of their wire for this project? Or they they didn't say it, but in their conclusions, they said you should try to reduce the di- the wire diameter. It'd be and, interesting to see uh, like how that dries up costs and especially time in order to make something. It might increase the time a little bit, but probably not the cost. But it would definitely increase the resolution by quite a bit. Um, what else can we say about this? It's super rad, and anybody who disagrees that it's super rad probably owns a small, overpriced commercial manufacturing business. There you go. Y'all can suck it. <laughs> All right. Suck um, my sprockets. Yeah, I kind of want to think about building this. I mean, a thousand, one thousand one hundred dollars is—that's a laptop. It could. That's true. That's actually very cheap, and you can pull yeah. it in. Well, let's wrap this up, guys. I think we've Sounds been here good. about an hour and 15 minutes, right? Hour and 10, yeah. Hour and 10. It'll be a little short episode, but that'll be fine. Not quite as short as a pulse, but pretty, but, you know. Yeah, that'll be a 45-minute episode. That's good. That's good. That's we don't want to get, we, we don't ram, we ramble a lot in a lot of our other ones. Yeah. I think, I think we're a lot more efficient when we're just over the internet. Probably. Because we're not, anyway, so. What do you guys have to say to conclude this paper? It's awesome. I cool. yeah, I'm very ex- I'm very excited that 3D printing is becoming such a huge thing. I I am very stoked. What I think one of the things that I'm most excited about this particular one is you combine this this printer with a regular plastic rep wrap, and then you can build almost the entire 3D printer just using two 3D printers. Like you basically at that point you only need to build the electronic components if you get this uh the the resolution and the quality up on this good enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying, and then you, that's the first step to making these like mass market affordable for everybody. And that was one of the things that they were talking about in the article. And that's the link we had with the third world is they said that this is both greener and cheaper than buying commercial goods. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited. There's a lot of great implications to this. And I think it's amazing that this is, this is a thing that's going to, that's kind of coming to the forefront in technology. This is exciting. All right. Chris, what do you have to say about this? I know you're not a metallurgist, but <laughs> well, uh, my first thought when it comes to 3D printing in general is that it's, it's is that it, it could open up a, a whole new and exciting level of uh, piracy, I guess. <laughs> I mean, um, it's going to it's going to get to the point eventually where you can build cars out of this stuff. Uh, so I'm not saying that because screw piracy. I'm saying that because that sounds actually pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, in that case, I guess that's all we have to say today. Uh, did we talk about the authors of the paper? No, we didn't. We just said they're Michigan Tech. Authors of this paper are uh, Gerald Anzalone is the first author, and Joshua M. Pierce is the uh, professor.
and they're in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at uh, Michigan Tech. So go material science departments, which I guess we don't have anymore, so whatever, ASU. All right, well, uh, thank you for joining us on Laser. Uh, this has been episode 10, I believe. This is our 10th full-length episode. Our first, Yeah, double digits. Yeah, right? Um, first episode over entirely over the internet, so that's kind of exciting. I hope it turned out okay and not too noisy or laggy or anything. Um, we have a few new things on the website. Uh, the website is laserpodcast.com, and we have a few new things on there. We've started an Amazon affiliate program. So if you do any Amazon shopping, uh, you can go to our website at laserpodcast.com, click on the Amazon link, and it will just refer you back to Amazon. Then anything you buy, we will get a portion of, somewhere between 4 and 15%, depending on how many people use the link. Uh, and we will use that to spend on website hosting. Uh, we need to get some podcast hosting to up- upgraded. And we also need some microphones, because if you hear the uh, sound quality is not so great on the other ends. Right now we only have one microphone, and everybody else is using their uh, built-in laptop mic. So that's not very good. Uh, so the, re- the remaining 80% of the funds will be spent on alcohol. No, we won't spend any of the money on alcohol. Oh, you're no fun at all. Sorry. I, we can't. <laughs> unless people send us money specifically for alcohol, it's not fair to uh, <sighs> to do that. This has got. It's all well, got to go to hosting the podcast or uh, microphone purchases. It's a, it's a legitimate production cost, Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you for listening to Laser. If you want to contact us, you can send an email with comments or questions or uh, suggestions for the show to contact at laserpodcast.com. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter. We are at laserpodcast. We're on Facebook and. That's it. And uh, if you want to, or please leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, iTunes doesn't suggest the podcast to anybody until we get some good ratings and good reviews. So every time you leave a review, you're helping somebody else find the podcast. And uh, I don't think we have any reviews right now. So if somebody leaves a review, we'll read it on the show. Except you, Chase. Don't leave a review. That's I probably don't want to read yours. But- <laughs> all right uh, saw, he thought he saw through my clever ruse that i was about to do yeah right okay well we'll uh we'll be back next week i guess bye bye guys right. bye bye thanks for listening this has been the laser podcast or let's agree science and engineering are rad Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about, in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye. better use this is a better use of that pool money than that whatever that vegan crap you're planning to do is <laughs> are you still doing the soylent thing um, yeah i'm think i'm still thinking about doing soylent you know I'm, soylent's you know soylent's people right it's, it's soylent people. great is people yes i know it's, it's people. people but i want to do that because it'll give me more time in the lab if i don't have to eat lunch and breakfast because every day i get hungry 
at like 10. So I go eat a snack and that takes 20 minutes. And then I go eat another meal at 12 or one or two or three, but I don't. So what you're telling me is that you're, you're too irresponsible to pack some snacks for yourself. No, I, I do pack snacks, but the problem is I'm in the lab, so I can't just like there it's, it's really inconvenient to stop my experiment, go upstairs to my office eat something and then go back down because then I, I have to get back into where I was in the experiment and all that. If I could just you know, drink an entire meal in two minutes, that would be perfect. You know how I know you're going to be a professor, Cameron? Why? It's that you're worried about uh, how much time eating takes out of your lab work, and instead of just doing less lab work, you're, you're going to switch to your dial to Sorlin so you can be in the lab more. That's yeah. That's... You know, dude, I'm just saying, step out for literally one minute and cram a granola bar in your mouth. You'll be fine. I still have to eat, like, real meals, though. And so this would replace a real meal. It has all the nutrients of a real okay. meal. Okay. Cameron? Yeah. Don't do this wrong way, buddy. You can definitely afford to take an hour off for lunch. I promise you. I would rather not, though. I would also like to say the following that you probably work way more hours than is legal. And <laughs> I, in, in grad school, I think there's a weird thing about that because you're not working. You're being taught. This is your school. And there's no like law against how much homework a professor can assign, right? It's more well, like that. And plus, it's voluntary. It's not like I'm being forced to work there. I'm, hey, I'm there by hey, choice. Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hmm? Do, you, do you hear – Stockholm syndrome rearing its ugly head. Because <laughs> I sure do. Chris, how long, how long do you spend in the lab every day? It varies a lot, uh, but I, I definitely try to make sure I eat real food. I'm not gonna yeah. I'm not eat, considering switching to freaking soy milk. <laughs> I but just anyway. feel, I feel like as long as I'm working not that much more than my professor every day, then I don't I can't really complain because Newman is there. 7 a.m. until 7 at night. Yeah, but that's that's like his job. He loves that shit, and that's 12 hour like a 12 hour day is like yeah okay, but you know he sets his he. I, I'm just saying he doesn't have to he doesn't have to do that. He chooses to do that, and I don't think you should have to be forced into that because Newman does it. I don't feel forced. I I am choosing oh, okay. how much I work. That's a. I I, I like, think love what I do. I love being in the lab. I'd be there for free. Don't tell Newman that because he'll take that. He'll take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not in it for the money. In case you didn't know how much I was being paid. Yeah, I know exactly how. I, I know that you're not in it for the money. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm just saying, like, there's there at a certain point, being not being in it for the money turns into you need money. You know. <laughs> All right. So, because we're not just sitting around dicking around, getting drunk. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, not getting drunk. Big, big uh, keywords there. That, I'm, sh I'm sure that's probably a lot of it. Probably. Oh, hold on. It's uh, we, we can get, we can, we can do better than that. It's like, wow, these solar panels are super expensive. You'd be better off buying gold. I don't know. <laughs> that was terrible. Cut that out. <laughs> that was bad. All right. So if you wanted to use solar cells in space at a certain Lagrange point, Chase. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> let me start off by explaining what a Lagrange point is. <laughs> uh, okay, well. But, I already cheated and I opened one, so. Jeez, Cameron. Yeah, sorry. Oh, well. That's borderline irresponsible. Yeah. I just don't even know if I can trust you anymore. Your alcoholism is tearing this family apart. <laughs> All right. Oh wait, what am how am I recording this? Am I recording this file format MP3 128? Okay. I was recording in Wave earlier and apparently that's huge gigantic file sizes. Yeah, it is. Exciting. But, yeah, but I'm not now. You know fun. Well, whatever. I don't really have that much computer space left or whatever it's called. You should record in FLAC, just to be ironic. Well, I can record in AUG Vorbis, but not FLAC. Oh. Uh, the, the options are MP3, AUG Vorbis, or WAVE. 
you don't have to say that you're unemployed. You could just say I've been working in the defense industry or something if you want. I don't mind. I don't mind. Maybe maybe this will be like somebody will just love me so much for what I do on this show. You know, like some guy in the industry will just come snatch me up. It'll be great. <laughs> okay. Fairy tale. Hi, and welcome to the Laser Podcast. Uh, I'm Cameron Copas, and I am a grad student at Arizona State studying... What am I studying, guys? <laughs> this bodes oh well God. for your PhD candidacy. <laughs> Wait, I, I, mean, right, I have a good way to describe it. It's. Uh, I, think you should, I think you should probably restart because, like, seriously, dude, nobody's going to respect this. 